1: And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone.
0: Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries.
1: Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly and Odyssey Podcast available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way
2: to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home.
1: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code SPOTIFY
3: for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. New Orleans was the most wonderful place to live as a young adult its reputation for being a party city with great food and even better music and nightlife it was wonderful as a young adult but the big easy got too hard when we had children the murder rate got so high in new orleans and once we had my son i couldn't see raising him in a place where i felt like I had to keep him in a cage outside. So we we moved across the lake. I had wonderful expectations about St. Tammany. It was a very romantic little beautiful town with artists and writers and oak trees that are on historic registers and Spanish moss. It was like stepping into a Southern novel. And like all good Southern novels, it had some chapters that I wasn't expecting. I thought I'd gotten away from the crime in New Orleans, but there was some extraordinary, uh, vicious crimes that happened in St. Tammany not long after we moved. Um, And it was was kind of hair-raising.
0: At the end of the last episode, we told you about a Slidell cop named Charles Mule, who had been charged on over two dozen counts of rape and molestation involving underage girls. Margaret Kuhn, who specialized in sex crimes, had prepared the case against him. But on the eve of his trial, Muley disappeared. When Margaret was murdered, his whereabouts were still unknown. I'm Jed Lipinski. This is Gone South. Season 1. Who Killed Margaret Kuhn? Episode 3: The Safest Parish. Margaret Coon was killed just 10 months after Charles Muley went on the run. Before we get into Muley's story, it's worth looking back at what was going on in St. Tammany in the lead up to those two events. What sort of crimes were happening there, and how did authorities deal with them? Were sex crimes fugitives and unsolved murders an anomaly, or an unfortunate part of daily life? We spent a lot of time in St. Tammany over the past few years. It's a different world from New Orleans, the crowded city across Lake Pontchartrain. That difference is accentuated by the drive from one shore to the other. So we're at mile 13 the bridge about halfway across the causeway and um, yeah, New Orleans has disappeared behind us and it's just, you know, these big towering Gulf Coast clouds so floating in the distance. A few little boats, but otherwise this lake is so big that when you're halfway across the causeway, it still looks like you're driving through the middle of the ocean.
2: The causeway is the longest overwater bridge in the world. It's about 26 miles long, has two lanes of traffic going north and two lanes of traffic going south.
0: This is Terry King, a financial consultant and co-founder of the Concerned Citizens of St. Tammany, a group that keeps a close eye on the parish's political class. He's also something of a local historian.
2: The only reason that bridge was ever built was to make it easier for people to commute from the Mandeville-Covington area to New Orleans. It has really no other use because truck traffic is gonna go around the lake. So the causeway is nothing but commuter traffic to and from the city. Nowhere else in the country do we have anything like that that I'm aware of.
0: The causeway was built in 1956, but people had been escaping New Orleans for the North Shore since before the Civil War. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Upper-class New Orleanians flocked there for the region's reputed health benefits.
2: You had these generations of people that would come to St. Tammany during the summer to escape the heat and the yellow fever of New Orleans, and they would have camps up here, little, you know, cottages or things, and you can still see them all along the Chifuncta River in different places.
0: In the mid-1800s, New Orleans was known as the Necropolis of the South on account of its soaring death rates. One writer called the city's swamplands a boiling fountain of death, belching up its poison and malaria. The breezy pine forests and artesian springs of St. Tammany were viewed as an antidote to city living. Towns like Mandeville and Covington erected cottages, hotels, and fancy resorts for wealthy visitors from across the lake. By the mid-20th century, though, New Orleans was changing. In 1954, the Supreme Court's ruling in Brown v. Board of Education mandated the desegregation of public schools. Six years later, the integration of two elementary schools in the Lower Ninth Ward triggered a race riot.
4: The mothers of downtown New Orleans screaming at a Negro child as she entered the William Franz Elementary School, first in the city to be integrated.
5: Well, regardless of what they've decided, we will have segregated schools.
0: School integration in New Orleans coincided with a rise in crime and an exodus of middle-class whites during the 1960s. Many landed on the North Shore, which had begun branding itself as a place to live, rather than a weekend getaway.
2: They started thinking, well, maybe we could live up here. The causeway made it accessible for everybody to do that.
0: A Times-Picayune reporter described St. Tammany as, quote, the final suburban frontier of greater New Orleans. In a 1973 ad for Beauchamp, developers enticed wealthy New Orleanians to, quote, return to rurality in style. That is, to escape the crime-filled city and its adjacent suburbs and live in peace among the moss-draped oak trees. People who found a sense of safety in St. Tammany wanted it to stay that way, so they elected public officials who promoted themselves as tough-on-crime.
2: They want it to be this idyllic, bedroom community for New Orleans. And if, if you were coming over from New Orleans and you, know, you were doing something that you shouldn't be doing, whether it's drugs or drinking or whatever, they were gonna put you in jail.
0: Before long, St. Tammany had developed a nickname, St. Slaminy. Buddy Spell, a local defense attorney, explains why.
6: If you looked at incarceration rates per capita worldwide, you got a better chance of going to jail here in St. Tammany Parish than possibly anywhere else in the world. So it's a very conservative, very right-leaning population, which much of their motivation for being there in the first place is some perception of law and order existing at a higher caliber in St. Tammany Parish than elsewhere. So they believe that they are safe there because they are hard on crime.
0: The epicenter of that feeling of safety was Beauchamp, a guarded, walled community. That's partly why Margaret's murder was so shocking. How could something like this happen here? Well, there was a darker side to the parish that wasn't entirely clear until you moved there.
3: It was just like I expected it to be at the beginning, but the seedy underbelly of it became apparent when Tom started working at the district attorney's office.
0: This is Lori Mall, the attorney who was friends with Margaret Kuhn, and whose husband Tom worked with Margaret in the DA's office.
3: It's not like he didn't work on murder trials in, in Orleans Parish, but they were kind of expected. That was a, a big motivating factor for moving to the North Shore, and there it was all over again in a much smaller place. We had kept a little place in New Orleans, and a couple of times I had to go to New Orleans because he, the threats Tom was getting and the irony of going back to New Orleans to feel safe didn't escape me. I don't really know how such a small place with such an exterior charm could host so many ghastly scenes of sexual abuse and pedophile rings and things like that that I was not expecting to brush up against.
5: They said it
6: couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them.
5: (laughs) And now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners.
0: We got listeners. No way. Amazing.
5: Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
6: I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh, my God. They're amazing.
5: The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. Going across the bridge, when it's a really clear day, you can see the Superdome downtown, right off the bat. That's pretty cool. I like that. But I also like turning around and coming back, start seeing that tree line, especially from the old lighthouse, Madisonville, working across. And the further I get in those trees, my comfort zone goes up real high because this this is me. I'm back up in these trees. In the country?
0: That's Donald Sharp, a retired deputy who joined the sheriff's office in 1977. Donald grew up in the parish and knows the area and its residents like the back of his hand. Donald remembers the Margaret Kuhn case well, and he remembers the investigation that followed. But he came to it with an intimate knowledge of St. Tammany's history. And when you look at the years leading up to Margaret's death, you're left with a lot of questions about Louisiana's safest parish. Within two years of joining up, Sharp lost two of his closest friends on the force.
5: My partner, John Bonnell, he was killed in 1979 in a narcotics deal. My Sergeant, Lewis Wagner, he was killed in 1978, and that's who I worked for.
0: Sergeant Lewis Wagner was driving home from work one night when he was shot in the back and killed. He was 25 years old. Detectives worked the case for years without success. But in the early 1980s, a new lead emerged in the form of an infamous Saint Tammany criminal named Robert Lee Willie.
5: I often see him up here at his kinfolks' home. From just listening to his kinfolk, he was a little troublemaker. His dad was a career criminal. Maybe that was part of Willie's deal to be like his daddy. But he became far worse than his daddy.
0: Robert Lee Willie's story was the inspiration behind the 1995 film Dead Man Walking, and Sean Penn's character was partially based on Willie. The story begins in May, 1980, when Willie and his partner, Joe Vaccaro, met a young woman named Faith Hathaway.
5: They met Faith Hathaway at the Lake Theater Lounge in Mandeville. She was about to go into the military and just out partying with some of her friends. And according to Willie, that she wanted to go take a ride with her and smoke a joint of marijuana. They took her out in the woods, they raped her, they held her down, and they stabbed her to death. They left her there.
0: Three days later, Willie and Vaccaro engaged in another attack not far away.
5: The next thing that happened, Debbie Quavis and Mark Brewster were sitting on the lakefront in Madisonville, and they kidnapped them. Willie raped Debbie Cuevas, and it had Mark Brewster in the trunk. Took him out. Took him in the woods. Shot him. Cut him. Tied him to a tree. He lived. Come back to Covington with Debbie in the car. And Joe Vakarev wanted to kill Debbie Quavis. And Willie said no. He wouldn't let him do it. They took her a couple blocks from her home and turned her loose. And shortly after, they were caught in Hope, Arkansas. At a bus station.
0: Donald Sharp heard about Robert Lee Willie's arrest while he was working at the parish jail. Soon after, he got a call from the district attorney's office.
5: And they said, We understand that you know Robert Willie. I said, Yeah, I do. I said, We understand you might could talk to him. Yeah, I'd talk to him. So we go in and we're sitting there, and FBI agents are everywhere. Brought Willie in. He said, hey, man, how you doing? I said, I'm good. How you doing? Good. We just small talk. So we sitting there. I said, Willie, you know I'm, I'm here for a reason. Yeah. I, said, I looked at the crime scene pictures out on the table. I said, that's the reason. He said, yep. I said, can you tell me about it? Yeah. He told me about picking her up at the lakefront and killing her. He said he held her hands. And told her, when she started gagging and screaming, he told her to behave. I said, "We tell her to behave, and you killing her? Well, what else am I gonna tell her?" That was that was Willie. So I said, "Now I said, what about the uh, the Quavis deal? Yeah, we done it."
0: Just like that, Donald Sharp had extracted two confessions from the most dangerous criminal in Saint Tammany Parish.
5: So it, it worked out. Got the confession. On Faith Hathaway and on Debbie Quavers. And I asked him when Vicario told him he wanted to kill Debbie Quavers. I asked him, I said, Why did you let her live? He said she was just too pretty to kill.
0: Sharp's relationship with Robert Lee Willie was proving valuable. Detectives hoped he might help them solve other unsolved crimes in the parish. At the top of their list was the murder of Lewis Wagner. Donald Sharp's old sergeant.
5: We're talking daily, and I told him, I said, Willie, I'd like to find out who killed Lewis Wagner, my sergeant. I can help you.
0: Once again, Willie cooperated. He said he and some buddies had followed Lewis Wagner as he left work that day, then ran his car off the side of the highway in Covington. When Wagner tried to run away, Willie said one of his friends shot Wagner in the back. His body was found in the parking lot of a local funeral home. Donald believed Willie's story. So did the DA's office. In 1982, Willie and three accomplices were charged with Lewis Wagner's murder. But then, things took a strange turn. Another famous three-named serial killer appeared in St. Tammany Parish, and he too confessed to Wagner's murder. His name was Henry Lee Lucas. Henry Lee Lucas was a one-eyed drifter from Virginia who served 15 years in Michigan for beating his mother to death. In 1983, while incarcerated in Texas on a separate charge, Lucas began confessing to hundreds of unsolved murders around the country. He confessed to four in St. Tammany alone. In addition to killing Louis Wagner, Lucas and his traveling companion, Otis Toole, confessed to raping and murdering a Covington teenager named Roxanne Sharp, a Slidell motel owner named Kenneth Lee Broyles, and a 28-year-old Folsom housewife named Ruth Ann Manguno. But it's the Manguno case that people remember.
1: Her husband returns home one morning and finds a warm cup of coffee on a kitchen counter, and she's missing. And he reports her missing. Days go by, searches, weeks, months.
0: This is Tim Lentz, a former St. Tammany Sheriff's deputy.
1: I get dispatched one afternoon to what they call a Signal 21. And in our codes, that just means a general complaint. I drive back to the house, and when I get out of my police car, there's some people standing on the porch of this residence, and it looks like they've seen a ghost. They're white. And they're. Did you see it? I'm like, see what? It's our mailbox. What are you talking about? So there's a skull at our mailbox, like, what? I get back in my police car, drive back down to the the highway to their mailbox, and sure enough, it looked like someone placed a human skull upright at the base of their mailbox. Not too long before that, Ruth Ann Manguno was
0: missing. They never found her body, and it turned out to be her skull. The Manguno case haunted residents of St. Tammany. If this was really a bucolic refuge from New Orleans, why were housewives' heads being delivered with the mail? There was immense pressure on law enforcement to solve the crime. So when a serial killer came along and claimed responsibility for a handful of local unsolved murders, the sheriff's office was overjoyed. In 1984, then-Sheriff Pat Canyolette told reporters he was 100% sure Lucas had something to do with Lewis Wagner's murder, and he felt pretty good about the other three. After all, Lucas and Toole told detectives things only the killer could have known, Canulet said, adding that Lucas had a phenomenal memory for details. But the way detectives extracted these confessions, it left something to be desired. Here's Tim Lentz again.
1: These detectives would put him in a police car, ride him around the parish to different crime scenes, go back to the police department, or sheriff's office at that time. and all right, let's put it on tape now and take and put him back in the car and record as they're riding around to these different locations, and would ask him, have you ever seen this location? Does this look familiar to you? Yeah, it does look familiar. Oh, no shit, you just saw it an hour ago when we drove by it. And these two detectives wind up charging them with the murders of Lewis Wagner and Ruth Ann Manguno.
0: Henry Lee Lucas claimed to have killed more than 600 people around the country, including 42 in Louisiana between 1975 and 1983, but, police started seeing some red flags. First of all, that number would have made Lucas and Tool the most prolific serial killers in American history, by far. When investigators started sharing information with departments in other states, they realized that Lucas and Tool were locked up when many of those crimes occurred. Lucas also claimed to have killed Jimmy Hoffa. It became increasingly clear that Lucas was full of shit.
1: It was later learned that... Lucas and Tool got smart with the system. Hey, if I confess to this one, they'll take me out of prison, they'll put me in a private plane, and I'll drive and I'll eat well. And they were probably on the road more confessing the crimes they didn't commit than the time they actually spent in prison.
0: In the end, Henry Lee Lucas recanted every one of his murder confessions, save that of his mother, though authorities still believed he killed others. The St. Tammany Sheriff's Office was humiliated. The detectives who took Lucas's statement both resigned, In their eagerness to clear cases, to make the parish look safe, they'd fallen prey to a con artist. For St. Tammany residents, it must have felt good to think that a single man was behind all those murders. That a handful of killers weren't still out there, sitting next to them in church or standing behind them in the checkout line. Then, as police were facing public pressure to solve these cases, another scandal rocked the parish. And this time, the suspect was a cop a Slidell detective named Charles Muley was arrested on a string of shocking charges. Times-Picayune reporter Drew Broach covered the story.
6: Charles Muley was the assistant chief of detectives in Slidell, and um, I knew him fairly well. It turned out he would encounter girls, uh, young teens, in the course of his work, who had either reported a crime or had witnessed a crime or whatever. And uh, so there was an official contact, but then he would persuade the girl and her parents that that she needed counseling and that she would need to come meet him, you know, once a month or whatever for counseling to deal with her trauma of whatever this crime was.
0: In March of 1985, a 12-year-old girl whom Mule had counseled was diagnosed with a sexually transmitted disease. The girl told her parents Mule had been sexually abusing her for months.
6: Well, he was meeting these girls, or taking these girls over to a hotel and was sexually abusing them. And so eventually he got caught, and I think there were four or five girls who came forward to accuse him, and um, it was a big scandal, of course, because he's a police detective.
0: Mule wasn't just a detective. He was the second in command of the detective's division and winner of the first ever Slidell Policeman of the Year Award. The charges shocked those who knew him. Mule pleaded not guilty. He claimed he'd been framed by cops he was investigating for wrongdoing. That's pretty far-fetched, given that four of his victims were prepared to testify against him. Then again, a Slidell cop later admitted to burning the diary of one of Mule's victims, along with pornographic pictures and condoms found in his desk. Mule's lawyer was quoted saying, it seems they selectively saved some things and burned the others. Regardless, Margaret was the prosecutor on the case, arguably the biggest and most explosive of her career.
6: Mule was arrested in, you know, 85. And on the eve of his trial, I think his trial was supposed to start on a Monday. Um, he like got in his truck on Friday or Saturday and, told his wife he was going somewhere.
0: Mule faked his own suicide and disappeared on May 11, 1986. No one knew where he went, but they speculated he was hiding out in the swamps around the Pearl River near Picayune, Mississippi, just across the border from St. Tammany Parish. He was still missing when Margaret was killed. When detectives ruled out Margaret's husband and boyfriend, they started looking at people she'd prosecuted.
6: What about Charles Muley? Because he was somebody from her past who was on, in an adversarial relationship with her when she was in the DA's office and he was a defendant, they're gonna look at him. So there was a big manhunt and you know they called the FBI, they put him on Unsolved Mysteries. Almost three years have passed since Muley disappeared. Police believe he may be hiding in the swampland
0: near Slidell, living a solitary ramble like existence. Some were skeptical that Muley had anything to do with Kuhn's death. Why would a fugitive who was successfully hiding from law enforcement return to St. Tammany Parish and risk getting caught? The DA Walter Reed told a local paper, If he came back to kill anybody, it would be me. But proponents of the theory like to point out that Mule had a special skill. This is a clip from the Unsolved Mysteries episode featuring Mule.
6: Sergeant Mule was a highly regarded undercover officer at Slidell's police department. Mule was so adept in his undercover disguises that he once arrested the
0: same felon three different times without being recognized. The Unsolved Mysteries segment aired in March of 1989. During a rerun in July, a property manager in Florida realized that a reliable former tenant named Joe Tranchina was not who he said he was.
6: The FBI gets a call from somebody in in Florida, near Ocala, Florida, saying, I've seen that guy, he lives down here, his name's Joe Tranchina, and um, he's gonna be at this place and at this time uh, looking at a house to buy. And so the FBI staked it out, and when, when Mule and the realtor and Mule's new girlfriend in Florida left the house they blocked the car and arrested him and it turned out that this guy Tranchino was indeed Charles Muley.
0: Authorities learned that Muley had been hiding in Ocala for nearly two years working as a used car salesman and motel manager. After his arrest Drew went to Florida to interview him in jail as he awaited extradition to St. Tammany. Toward the end of the interview he brought up Margaret.
6: I said you know Nobody's known where you were or anything, and some people think you killed Margaret Kuhn. And he looked at me, he kind of was taken aback and his eyes opened, and he said, really? He seemed genuinely surprised that his name had surfaced in that.
0: To be clear, no one knows where Mule was the night Margaret Kuhn was killed. Records show that he was issued a Florida driver's license on March 5th, 1987, two weeks after the murder. The manager of a used car lot near Ocala said Mule started working there a month or two later. After pleading guilty, Mule was sentenced to 12 years in prison for 29 counts of sex crimes involving children and two years for jumping bond. But at the time Mule was captured, his connection to the Margaret Kuhn murder was tenuous at best. Investigators had no material evidence linking him to the crime scene, and the idea that he would risk recognition to stab Kuhn seemed pretty unlikely. One former detective told me, quote, I don't think he had the balls to do it. Plus, by then, the police had been swept up by a different suspect, one that entailed something far more enticing than a potential motive. This suspect came with a confession.
4: I got me a hunting knife. I have a magazine on Fortune works, right? I, I got it sitting all up on my dash. What kind of hunting knife do you have? Oh, it's a little... It's a Japanese hunting knife. It's about this big. You know, big old blade on it. Maybe that knife's got something to do with it. That's why when you get in that truck, you, a lot of things happen to you when you got in that truck, huh? Yeah. Why don't you go get your knife and let us see it, and let's, let's look at it. Sure.
0: In the summer of 1988, the police caught their first break in a long time. A man named Craig Rodriguez confessed to Margaret's murder. Rodriguez was a merchant seaman who lived with his mother in St. Tammany in between jobs. He also did part-time maintenance work in Beauchene, the subdivision where Margaret was killed. Apparently, Craig had been stalking Margaret for a while, starting while she was living with Bernard Smith on the lakefront. He would sit near her house and play guitar while watching her garden. By the time Rodriguez confessed, the Kuhn investigation had been taken over by the Sheriff's Office's Chief of Detectives, Clark Thomas. A cerebral man with a solid reputation, Thomas was known for keeping case information in his head rather than writing it down. In March of 1988, he sat Rodriguez down for an interview.
4: You said that and then you wrote down like, I killed here. The voice said something like, I killed here. That's, that's what it sounded like. It sounded like a female voice or, or maybe a male. I'm not really sure. It was a really strange voice. Ocean is a crazy place. It, it has to be. They got, some, they got some crazy people. Remember talking about the lions? I, I was on top of a bunker, and it looked like a lion was going across, and then suddenly it came
0: across me. From interview transcripts, it's clear that Rodriguez was dealing with some kind of mental illness, but his testimony was compelling. Authorities believed he was the guy. Chief of Detectives Clark Thomas has spent dozens of hours with Craig Rodriguez, the new suspect. In April of 1990, Bill Elder, an investigative reporter for WWL-TV, produced a segment about the search for Coons' killer. He spoke with Detective Thomas and got access to a videotaped interview he did with Rodriguez.
4: One of the things he told me was that uh, he used to sit out in front of her house uh, when she lived on the lake, lakeshore in Mandeville and play the guitar to her. I used to go out there in the trees and just kind of sit down and play my guitar. You know? And I just drive back home. You know? I see her a couple times, you know, but where did you see her? There you are.
0: According to Clark Thomas's theory, when Margaret divorced Bernard Smith and started seeing Dr. Jay Fagan, Craig felt betrayed. And he wanted revenge.
4: I see it as an individual that stalked her. My belief is that it was not intentional to kill. It was intentional to hurt. Do you find it strange that he never delivered another blow that he just he left it at that? No, I, I don't find it strange at all because he's not he's not looking to uh, to disfigure her at all. She to him he's a very beautiful woman. She's on a pedestal and it's a love hate uh, combination. So all he's looking for is uh,
0: to hurt. Thomas clearly found Rodriguez a solid suspect. But after months of interviews and interrogations, the sheriff's office still hadn't arrested him. Sheriff Pat Canulet explained why.
4: And that is an obvious question that, you know, hey, we think he did it, why not get him? We don't have the physical evidence, number one. And number two is we have someone saying he did it.
5: Do we go arrest him and convict him and put him away for life and he didn't do it because he's crazy and he perceives that he did do it?
0: When Elder asked how strongly he felt about Rodriguez, Canulet hedged his bets, perhaps remembering how confident he was that Henry Lee Lucas wasn't just making stuff up.
5: I'm 60-40, but I'm not investigating the case. The
4: investigators feel a lot stronger. Some of them feel, yes, 90-10, some 80-20, but I'm 60-40.
0: But those odds turned out to be generous. Further investigation found that Rodriguez didn't start working in Beauchamp until after Margaret was murdered. Detectives did discover a large hunting knife in Rodriguez's truck. It was consistent with the shape and size of the blade that killed Kuhn. But according to sheriff's officials, the crime lab was unable to obtain any forensic evidence connecting it to the crime scene. It dawned on investigators that Rodriguez's delusions were severe. He talked about seeing lions in sand traps on the Beauchene golf course. He said he'd seen a woman putting with human eyeballs. At the end of one hours-long interview, an exhausted detective told Rodriguez, To be quite honest with you, you confuse the shit out of me. And that's what Craig Rodriguez's testimony amounted to. Confusing nonsense. Hallucinations. Fiction. The sheriff's office indulged Rodriguez's rantings for almost two years. But as with Henry Lee Lucas four years earlier, St. Tammany detectives had been misled. 90-10 and 60-40 gradually became 0-100. Then district attorney Walter Reed also seemed ready to give up.
4: We've been through so many leads. We've been
6: encouraged so many times that I'm, I'm sort of at a point where I'm
4: confused about the whole situation.
0: Then in August, 1991, the investigation was dealt another crushing blow. Clark Thomas, the lead detective known for storing information in his head, was involved in a car crash while tracking down a lead in North Louisiana. He died following open-heart surgery a few days later, taking years of knowledge about the case to his grave. At this point in the story, let's pause and recap what we know so far. The morning Margaret's body was found, the crime scene was trampled by Beauchene residents and then sprayed with a fire extinguisher in an effort to subdue Margaret's dog, Charlene.
4: 126 Central, notify Detective Division.
0: Detectives searched Margaret's apartment, finding nothing of note other than two martini glasses and some cigarette butts. Uh,
4: 1097, victim residence.
0: Later on, Margaret's boyfriend, Jay Fagan, willingly stated that he had drinks with Margaret the night before she was killed and that the cigarette butts were his. They later interviewed a Boshan employee who claimed he'd chased a bearded man with a knife an hour before Margaret was killed. And then him turning around and, you know, brandishing a knife. But detectives dismissed that connection as well. Police then turned their attention to Margaret's husband, Bernard Smith, her boyfriend, Jay Fagan, and Jay Fagan's estranged wife, Brenda. Bernard was seen in Lafayette at a luncheonette the day Margaret was murdered.
6: They went to the cafeteria and they looked at the cash register receipts. And sure enough, a diner ate the exact same thing that Bernard Smith had told them.
0: And Jay and Brenda Fagan were together on the night of Margaret's death.
6: Unless they were colluding, they were together and neither one of them was in Beauchien that
0: night. All three suspects were interviewed extensively. Police then expanded their search to people who Margaret had prosecuted. That stirred up suspects like Charles Mule, a fugitive at the time of her murder. One by one, the people who Margaret prosecuted
6: while she was an assistant district attorney in St. Tammany were found to be either in jail
0: or far away. No material evidence ever connected Mule to the crime. Then there was Craig Rodriguez, whose involvement with the killing was deemed a figment of his imagination.
4: They got some crazy people. Remember talking about the lions?
0: Authorities were forced to admit they were no closer to catching the killer than the day Margaret's body was found.
6: That is what makes the attack so puzzling. It did not seem like a place that someone planning the killing would choose. Nothing secluded, not an easy escape route. Yet, no one actually saw it happen.
0: While no one saw the murder take place, the image of Margaret Kuhn lying dead on the side of the road, her clothes soaked with blood, was something that people could not unsee. It jolted the North Shore community. The unsolved murder of Lewis Wagner, the indiscriminate raping and killing done by Robert Lee Willie, the skull of Ruth Ann Manguno, the false confessions from Henry Lee Lucas, and now a former assistant district attorney slain in a suburban fortress. People wanted answers, and the police were coming up empty. As time passed, people grew impatient, scared, and suspicious. It's not the people in power, it's the power structure that people are afraid of. At the beginning of this episode, you heard from an attorney named Buddy Spell. This is his wife, Annie, who's also a lawyer. So the power structure that was in place 35 years ago that kept people from speaking out,
3: that power structure that kept them quiet, that's still there. And maybe the reason they haven't made an arrest in Margaret Coon's murder is because they're not looking at themselves. No one
6: said, the deputies do not go to sleep. The DAs don't go to sleep. No one goes to sleep tonight until they bring the person or persons involved before me. There was none of that. And and that was a big red flag for me.
4: They had no clues, they had no evidence. They didn't have a knife, they didn't have anything. No fingernails or fingerprints.
1: You know, when we have homicide cases like this, we don't work them, we live them. We literally live those cases. Listen, let, let me say this. Turn everything off just a sure, minute. Sure.
0: If you have tips or information that you'd like to share related to the unsolved murder of Margaret Kuhn or other relevant topics, you can call us at 650-746-GONE or email us at gonesouthpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Gone South, a direction and production of C-13 Originals, a Cadence 13 company. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13, along with John Liebman, Ken Lee, and Jared Shear. Written and narrated by me, Jed Lipinski. Directed by Lloyd Lockeridge. Produced by Tom Lipinski. Edited by Alistair Sherman, with assistant editing by Molly Nugent. Research and production support by Ian Mont and Paige Heimson. Recording and engineering by Bob Tabador, Bill Schultz, and Sean Cherry. And mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Original music written and performed by Casey Wayne McAllister. Production consulting by Skip Sewell. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swarth, Moira Curran, Hilary Schuff, and Josephina Francis. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. a new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, Justin Alexander, an adventurer, was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive deep into our investigation and uncover the strange events surrounding Justin's disappearance in Status Untraced. Check out this sneak preview.
3: And this last experience he had with Rawat, I didn't feel good about it. In fact, I felt it was dangerous. It sounds strange, but I just in my mother's heart, something
0: was not okay. I felt that he was a nefarious character. Status Untraced is available now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts